do Route 66 again. Part of me would like to do it from the terminus in the west heading east. There's actually a version of the Bobby Troop song that you know that, that gets you kicked on Route 66 that does it in reverse, and that would be just kind of a fun thing to uh, to do. But I, the, the whole notion of starting out again in Chicago and just moseying on the road, waking up each day and just deciding how much pavement you want to follow. That's terrific. When I was re-looking at this chapter out of the book of why I liked it so much, it's in Missouri, which has some of the sweetest parts of the old road. And yeah, to be on that again, either either for a few days or a couple of weeks would be just a, a, a gift. That was the voice of author Rick Antonson. Rick joins us here in the V-Twin Cafe today to tell us all about his latest book. This is Ted Kettler, your host here on the Motorcycle Man Podcast, and this is episode 275. It's Motorcycle Man. In this segment of chapters, we have author and traveler Rick Antonson, and he joins us here to give us a preview of Chapter 4 from Route 66 Still Kicks, Driving America's Main Street. The Motorcycle Man Podcast is brought to you by Scorpion Helmets. They're offering high-quality, innovative motorcycle helmets and technical apparel at an incredible value. To learn more, you go to scorpionusa.com. And Shinko Tires. Now, Shinko has a tire to suit your needs and riding style without breaking your bank account. So go to Shinko Tire USA and you tell them that the motorcycle men sent you. And you know, you can improve your comfort and ability to stay in the saddle much longer with a cushion from Wild Ass Seats. So if you're tired of those painful pressure points and fatigue, go to wild-ass.com and get your cushion today. And Make sure you say that the motorcycle men sent you. Now listen, for the best in casual riding gear for men and women, there's only one place you should be going, and that is Tobacco Motorwear. So visit them at TobaccoMotorwear.com. So visit them at TobaccoMotorwear.com, and our listeners will get 10% off your order when you use the code MOTOMEN when ordering. Your safety is worth it, so you know you want to get into Dave's pants. And you clear digital. You clear helmet communication systems are based on direct feedback from riders, dealers, and industry experts to be the most advanced and easiest to use, the most durable, most portable, best sounding, longest lasting, and weatherproof comm system ever. Its cutting edge tech is made simple to use while being rugged enough to withstand any weather condition. Enhance your rides with UClear's Dynamesh compatible intercom, powerful music, and crystal clear phone calls on any road, any trail on any helmet. To learn more, go to uclearedigital.com and you tell them that the motorcycle men sent you. Rick, I want to welcome you back to the podcast. How are you doing, sir? Very well, Ted. It's just neat to be chatting again, and I'm really looking forward to this particular episode. It's yes. a clever idea. Well, thank you very much for joining me on this uh, episode of Chapters. Now, for those who are not familiar with who you are, why don't you tell us who you are and what you do? 
well, I write books. And of course, during times when a lot of people are having to, uh, to, to quarantine or stay within home, um, for writers, that's kind of what we do. We're a bit isolated. Even though that, that the urge to get out on the road is always there. Um, it, so I, I write. I, I write full time. By that, I mean probably 30 hours a week of trying to storytell. And so I've, I've got um, a handful of nonfiction books that are out. One of them we're going to talk about today. And the others have, have enjoyed a, a, a nice popularity, which is, has been pleasing because writers need readers. I have a, a book about travels with my 10-year-old grandson on trains that was supposed to come out um, six months ago, but it's been punted now into the future because of the restrictions on travel and so forth. Sure. So that's, that's, that's kind of me uh, right now. I, I used to work in, in tourism and marketing, uh, the destination of Vancouver in, in Canada. I've been involved with a lot of organizations like Destinations International out of Washington, D.C. I've had the good fortune to be in most every one of the uh, the American states and like that, either seeing family or relatives or my grandmothers from the states. I, um, I, I just love that part of the world and, and um, look forward to more time on more of those roads. Excellent. Uh, now, you, first of all, I'm very jealous that you do what you do because there's ah. nothing I would love to do more than just do that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know? I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I, I put that top of my mind. Uh, you, you, you have my envy. Now, Route 66 Still Kicks is a book you had authored about this world-famous road. So why don't you tell us how uh, this journey came about? So, it was, you know, I, I traveled with uh, a buddy. His name's Peter. He's prominent in, in the book. And we'd been in Libya and Algeria. Uh, and then we were talking about going on another trip. And, and I have to credit him with this because one of the things I've learned since our journey is that anywhere in the world, to any person, you can mention Route 66 and they have in their imagination something about that road. And yeah. almost everybody has said, I'd love to drive that. And it, it, so it's, 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 it's really one of the few international travel icons. It, it's like mentioning the Eiffel Tower yeah. or Big Ben in London. It, it's of that international immediate recognition. So Peter and I were having beers, talking about maybe we'd go on another trip. And we weren't going to be able to, to get very far away. And out of the absolute blue, he said, what about Route 66? And I said, that's great. And he said, I think it goes through five or six states. I said, I don't know, but I'll find out right away. And of course, it goes through eight states. And I didn't know the route. I knew a bit about Chicago. I knew the song, the Bobby Troop song. Sure. And so that gave some landmarks. But when I, I looked at a map and I thought, we're going to drive through those eight states and get into the middle of nowhere and we can skirt around some of the big cities. How amazing an experience is that going to be? And as much as I anticipated it, when we left, eight weeks after the idea came to Peter's suggestion, we left and we had a couple of weeks. We rented a car and we had tickets two weeks later out of L.A. And we didn't have any other plans other than, as Peter said, let's go find all the old parts. And that became our mantra. We wanted to drive down dirt roads that we knew were a dead end that, that hadn't been part of Route 66 since maybe the 1930s. 
but they were at one point. We wanted to get on them. And that was the motivation. And we stayed true to our mantra. And it was a rental car, so we were scraping the muffler and scraping the bottom <laughs> on some of these back roads. And, yeah. and we had to get pulled out a couple of times by uh, just good, wonderful, hospitable Americans who saw us stuck and said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you get out of that situation, um, which we really welcome. So we, we just had a, a, a wondrous trip, and it, it turned out to be a book. You know, and the thing is, is that Route 66 of today is not the same route that it was, you know, 50 years ago. So that finding that route from 50, 60 years ago, maybe even further back, must have been very difficult. So as far as describe the route for us and your preparation and planning this trip. Well, I, I think most of us have in our, our mind a, a, a romantic view of, of Route 66. Yes, yes. And, and of, you know, maybe a, a, a being in a Corvette or, or being in an old Chevy and an old Ford and or on a motorbike. And, and here you are, you're just, you're, you're cruising. And it's open and you can just go forever. Well, you know, the fact is you can get up in Chicago and be in L.A. in two and a half, three days. All you got to do is chase pavement all the time. Right. But if you want to be where the magic is, we were able to source some some good maps and a couple of guidebooks and we would use them. Though we got lost often, but when we got lost, it was because in some of the cities, the route moved around over the years because of politics or because of development. And so some cities may have three or four different routes through them. Like you get to Albuquerque and, and Route 66 goes here and then it's the old ones blocked off and then it moved to another three blocks for a while and then it gets bypassed. So we wanted to see these and that's what we went looking for. So we, we got some paper maps, one for each state. So we had all eight of them in front of us. They were hand-drawn maps by somebody who had done the road and we had a guidebook. And we said, look, we're not going to do much more than use these and ask for directions along the way. And I have to tell you that every time we ask for directions at a gas station, in an old cafe, at a, you know, a roadside diner, we wouldn't just get directions. We'd get a story. And it would probably be about when their grandparents came through, if it was a young person, or it would be when they and their, 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 their partner had first driven the route or how they got into the business of running a small out of the way motel and restoring it. So every time we would try to figure out what we wanted to do the next day, people would say to us, well, you know, if I were you, I'd go slow. Or if I were you, I'd just speed up a little bit so you can have brunch at such and such a place. Everybody had something that they wanted us to do to make our trip more special. And you don't find that in all parts of the world. No, and it, I can imagine it must have been a very educational experience as well. You know, I, I, I was just eyes wide open all the way because I would pick up reading material and, and you know, you, you, you want to get John Steinbeck's, you know, book because he writes about the, 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 the mother road and he writes about the Okies and, and, and you, you, you want to learn about, about that. Um, but it was it was educational in what people told us, educational in what there are so many museums along the way. Oh, yeah. And, and oh, yeah. They, many of them run by volunteers and they're volunteers because they're proud of where they're from and they want to tell the stories. So, yeah, it, it was I learned tons. Now, in writing the book 
And I, I will say that Peter had no idea I was writing a book until we were back eight months from our trip. Because I hadn't said it. I, I didn't know if it would be a book. Surprise. I didn't know be enough. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know if there'd be enough incidents and anecdotes to, to kind of work. But but one of the things about Route 66 still kicks is that it's just loaded with some uncommon history. It might be something that people know a bit about. Right. But I I really delved into the research and I would find different twists, different ideas, little known stories. So uh, my education about that swath of America um, was was just palpable and and uh, and you just you come to love the people along the way and love the road and what's not to like about about that. Oh yeah, I mean for me I learned uh, things about that particular route that I did not know and I had followed a, a several other people who have who actually have driven all of the old sections of course with the exception of the parts where the bridges are missing but yes. uh uh very very interesting you, you, you people just don't realize how much the road has deviated from its original path right and 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 you know there'd be these dead ends but you would be on them and that that's fine and then you'd have to try and find where it wasn't paved over and we would actually drive through ditches and get up onto patches of the old pavement that were were overgrown because we wanted to to say we'd driven them now sometimes we could only drive a few hundred yards because it was being overgrown and again we had a rental car so we maybe worried a little less about scraping it up but we right. wanted to drive on these these parts of it so i mean that was that was fantastic but, but you know, I, when I began researching things, and there's a page I call my $1,000 page, because at the time I had a, I wasn't just relying on book royalties, I had a job that paid me. And so I, I, I decided to invest in trying to follow up a, a rumor. And the rumor was that Bobby Troop's song, Get Your Kicks on Route 66, was actually an extended version, rather than the short popular version Nat King Cole recorded. And this, this I had read about in articles, and people said Perry Coleman recorded it. I tracked down the Perry Coleman recording. But what I found out was that the only way to prove what the original words were was to go to the Library of Congress and pay them minimum two hours, $175 an hour, to research it, find the original document. And when they found it, they wouldn't give it to me until I showed them I had proof in writing that I had permission to reproduce in print the song. Well, everybody reproduces it in print all the time. Sure. It's all over the internet. Nobody else pays for it. But if I wanted to know and get a copy of the actual copyright submission by Bobby Troop in 1946, I had to show I had these rights. Those rights cost me hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars. I had to get different copyright wow. holders now. So that page that tells the truth, which I won't say here because people should read it, that page that reproduces it cost me a thousand dollars in permission fees. Wow, that is wow, that's amazing! Yeah. Holy, but nobody know. else had ever done it, right? And the fact that you did do it is interesting enough in itself. Yeah, uh, I think for me, one of the most interesting parts that I first learned about, and even even read about in your book, is uh, the sidewalk highway. Yeah. You know, here's a here's a section of Route 66 where they had the option either to pave the road half the length or pave the entire length only half wide. 
so they right. opted for the half wide, <laughs> which right. which cracks me up. So I know, uh, and I had read about that in advance, and I was determined, no matter whose turn it was to drive, and it's different. I get it, you know, if you're on a motorcycle, it's yours. You get to to to, to choose, but when you're sharing driving, yeah, and, and there's the pleasure in that. I just had to engineer it that I was in the driver's seat when we got to that part of, of, right. of Oklahoma. Um, just after we'd been through Commerce, where, where um, Mickey Mantle was grew up, and, sure. and, uh, and it was great. And, and but I wanted to I wanted to drive that and go with with um, one side of the car with the wheels on, and the other side with the wheels in the gravel. You know, it's funny to me that even after that part was sectioned and all the years that followed. It never came to them, or it, they just never finished it. They yeah. just left it. That, yeah. just and now nothing. nobody would want them to finish it. Right, exactly. Because right? it's right. a story. Right. Uh, so now, what challenges did you face along the way, and did you have a favorite part? Well, I, you know, the parts of, of, um, of Oklahoma, uh, parts of Missouri you'll you're just your hours on but just a gentle road you could be on the freeway and making make a time if if you wanted it's not that far away but you have this sense of you're there and and you can kind of close your eyes and fetter your 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 eyes a bit and and you really do feel that it is 30 or 40 years ago and you sure you'll drive by things that have modern constructs or you'll you know see a uh, I mean, modern vehicles, but but there are the the um, the old places to pull over for souvenirs or for for food or some of the museums that have have you know vintage um, you know vehicles and and stuff like that. There's just lots of that. So so those parts I really like. But and while you have some favorites, it's every every state had something different and every state had dealt with the politics around the road sure oh yeah quite, oh yeah yeah quite quite differently but i i would say you know because we would stop for three meals a day yeah. and we had made a road rule at the start that we would never eat the same thing twice <laughs> so if we'd had pancakes we weren't going to have pancakes <laughs> next time right so right. we'd get somewhere and they say well what do you want we'd say well we can't have anything on your menu because we've already it's day seven we've already had ham and eggs and bacon and eggs and pancakes so make us something. So they'd come out from the back with something that was local. And, yeah. you know, maybe gravy over pancakes or something that you'd never thought of. <laughs> but but if I, I could just say people made, our, people made our trip. And my favorite parts, yes, were sometimes driving, but often it was just being with Route 66 folks. Right. I know, you, what uh, type of challenges did you face on that trip? Well, so as I, I mentioned, you know, Peter said, "Let's find all the old parts." So, so we were uh, we were we were on this one section again, Oklahoma, where um, it had rained the night before, and we left a diner, and they had said, "Hey, just stay out of the muddy areas because it rained last night." And we got to this it's place where the the route, when it began in 1926, went this way, say to our right. And the newly paved area, which came along in the 40s or something, went this way. Well, the old route never got paved. And it looked fine to me, and I was driving. And Peter said, we shouldn't go there. It was raining last night. I said, well, it's not raining now. Let's go. So on we went. Well, we're in the middle of nowhere. And you can just, the car is slipping and sliding and slipping <laughs> and sliding. And you can, you can feel it. You're sort of like a, 
a grater that's building up the stuff in the undercarriage, right? And eventually we just <laughs> ground to a stop in the middle of this, of the road where it was kind of flooded. And I got out and I stepped down. I like sunk just six, six inches in mud. And, and we, we were there and we didn't know what to do. We had no cell phone connection. I had said to Peter, I'd rather travel with somebody who smokes than somebody who's on their cell phone. I said, I'm leaving my cell phone behind. And I got him to park here. So <laughs> we had, there was no reception anyway. Right. So we were there and I crawled under it and I carved away at it. And we got branches and put it in. We moved a little bit. And we were there and it was starting to get dark. And we just thought, you know, this is, this, this is stupid. Um, we, we have, have done ourselves a disservice here and, but I'm feeling kind of buoyant cause I kind of feel it's, it's an experience that yeah. you wouldn't have had yeah. normally. And I was glad I wasn't with my wife. I, you know, right. I didn't have responsibilities for anybody else. I didn't really care if Peter got dirty. And then along comes this guy in a great big Ford pickup and he's coming along, he's coming along and I won't walk down to meet him cause he's going real slow and it's drizzling and. And um, he rolls down his window, and I said, um, uh, we're stuck. And he says, no kidding. And he said, I'm driving out here thinking, I want to get off this road. Why did I ever get on this road? And I come around the corner. He said, there's a Mustang? <laughs> said, yeah, about that. You guys rented a Mustang. <laughs> we did. We did. It was fantastic. Convertible. Convertible. And half the days we had the tops down. So it was great. And it was October. It was a gorgeous time of year. But this guy who's digging in his in his pick up for chain or rope or whatever, he eventually pulls us out. And he was just just like a godsend, you know. Yeah. Come, we'd still be there if he had to come along. You know, it, it's that seemed to be a theme throughout the book as I was listening to the audiobook, is that that happened not just once, it happened a couple times. It it did and we overheated on uh Sitgreaves Pass, which is where you're you know you're leaving um, and going into California. Uh, so you're just right at the state border. And it was related to the mud because even though we washed and washed and cleaned off the car after the mud incident, a couple of days later, we, we overheated because there was still mud on the radiator. Oh, my God. And, and, and we did that. And, and fortunately, uh, somebody again came along and had a couple of you know, huge containers of water that they shared. And our, our radiator had calmed down and we could get in some more water and we made it up there. But, yeah, we were... We were for a couple of guys, you know, who have, have uh, traveled widely, uh, were of an age where you, you, you should at least not be immature. We still had a certain amount of naivete. And, and I think part of that was that we were just, there's something about when you're driving Route 66, you become a little giddy because <laughs> it, it's, it's, uh, you're, and, and maybe, maybe cavalier. It, it, there's something about the, the, the magic of Route 66 that says, you know, be carefree. Like, just yeah. go on. And so maybe you're not thinking like you would if you're in the city trying to survive. I don't know. But, yeah, we had um, we got stuck and pulled out a couple of times. We had the overheating I just mentioned. Uh, and we had a couple of other things where we needed people to help us out. Um, yeah. When we got to Oatman in, in California, we needed a mechanic. And the only one we found was absolutely drunk as could be. And uh, so I took him out so he could take a look at the car for us. And he just fell under it. Um, and he said, no, I'll have to look in the morning. And in the morning, he helped us and, and uh, cleaned us up a little bit more, and we're on our way. How much of that mud did you bring home with you? You know, one of the final things I did when we were saying goodbye to the car, we had our bags out of it. We're at the airport, and, 
LA is. I just so whacked the back of it as a sort of a thank you, and a chunk of mud fell off <laughs> onto the <laughs> airport parking lot. So, so uh, yeah, because I I had literally crawled under the vehicle, and so I was covered in mud. And and when when we'd finished washing the car, one of those hose car washers, Peter just turned it on me up and down, up and down, <laughs> up and down. And so I was absolutely soaked. That's what. Now, as far as it goes for the book itself, what was it your intention to start with to make uh, to write a book about this? No, it wasn't. I'm a, a note taker, but I'm not a, a diarist or I don't keep a, a, a journal. I would, you know, write maybe on if we were in. I remember one place in particular where we're in a, a, a coffee shop, and I actually it's a story we I recount in there, and the the four guys that were across from us, all locals, were so clever and unintentionally witty and so genuine people that that I had a pen and I just I had a copy of the local newspaper and I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote trying to make sure I had things to jog my memory of everything that they were saying because they were so so um, sincere yeah. and giving advice but but jostling each other like four old guy buddies and so I had that when I got home uh, and I would make notes during the day and stuff but I didn't know if this would be a book. It turned out to be my second book. So I'd only done the, the to Timbuktu for a haircut. So I wasn't sure. You know, my last trip uh, now, my most recent book, when I was went to Papua New Guinea, I did a proper notebook. I, I made sure there were going to be proper photographs and stuff. On Route 66, I maybe took 10 photographs. Peter probably took 3,010 photographs. So I had to get all the photographs from him, and they jogged my memory about yeah. a lot of stuff, yeah. right? So I could describe it an encounter and, and something like that. But uh, no, I didn't. I didn't leave thinking that there would be a book in this because you really do to sustain a, a, a book length treatment. You need lots of incident, lots of anecdotes. You need things to go wrong. Nobody wants to read about your nice cruise down the street. They want to. Sure. They want to. They want to think they're smarter than than the book author and in this case it wasn't isn't difficult <laughs> this this right do you wish you had a digital recorder with you instead you know i i know is a short answer the 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 better explanation probably is i think if you're too intent on doing something you change the behavior of yourself and people around you yeah it is and true it's that. a bit about, you know that, that a, a scientist will say in a chemistry lab just by watching an experiment, you change the experiment. Exactly. And and I think if Peter had a thought, I was uh, going to be writing about this, I, I, his behavior would have changed. Oh, sure. I just would have been more conscious of it. So, no, no, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want that. Uh, afterwards, when you're trying to restructure things, yeah, and yeah. recapture, you, you, you wish you had that, but... No, I you know I could put on a, a song like some of the Woody Guthrie songs, like you know the Oklahoma Hills or something, and and uh, I could just listen to that on repeat, and it would bring back. And I was on the drive, so I could describe the drive because it just evoked as music yeah. does. Yeah. Uh, what made you decide to turn it into an audio book? Well, that was a decision by the publisher. So the publisher oh, is okay. Sky. And and uh, I got a note one day out of the blue. So their obligation as publisher was, you know, they were going to publish it as a print book and publish it as a, a, an electronic book, an, e, an e-book, and have it available through everything from, you know, all the local stores, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, all of that. And then one day I got a 
pop-up, like a Google alert, um, on my name mentioning the Timbuktu book, uh, to Timbuktu for a haircut, had been made an audio book. That was my first book. And so I sent a note to the editor at Skyhorse and said, um, do you know anything about this? I, it's news to me. I didn't know that was going to happen. They said, oh, yeah. In fact, they've also contracted to do an audio book of Route 66 Still Kicks. Oh. And I said, oh, that's just great. And so then they, um, I got a note that uh, that from the, the the narrator who's going to going to read it, um, saying that that he'd been given the assignment by uh, Amazon through Audible Books, and just wanted to talk a little bit about. It. It's not a book with complicated place pronunciations, right? Uh, like you know when I was going to Timbuktu or when I was in Iraq or or Iran or I mean you got lots of place names or personalities historically. Oh sure, yeah. But everybody can figure out how to pronounce, you know, Nat King Cole and Bobby Troop and 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 uh, you know Winslow, Arizona. So so there wasn't much in the way of pronunciation we had to talk about, but it was just a little bit of a, a contact because he was going to become the storyteller, and I, I loved hearing. He's going to become the voice of the books. Now speaking of Brian Brian Troxel, yes. uh, did you have a, a decision in selecting him as the uh, narrator for the book? No, I didn't. You he did not. He was announced to me okay. um, by, by, by Amazon, and and uh, it, it worked out well, worked out really, really nicely. But I think you know his professional credentials and working relationship with them. Somebody in their production end said, "Ah, this is, I know the guy whose voice we want behind this book," right. and then and they uh, chose him. So I, I was very happy with that. Now, how closely did you work with him uh, on this book? Not we. We didn't have a lot of contact, and I was available if he wanted uh, wanted me involved. But it was it was his voice, and I think when I try to, to imagine what it would be like to do that, I I'm not a fast reader, but you have to read the book, yeah. then you have to sort out how you're going to do it when you've got you know two, three, four people in a situation. You have to give voice to their dialogue. There's lots of dialogue in the book, mm-hmm. and, and you have to decide what is the overall narrator's tone because I'm, I'm generally in a good mood. I write about being in a good mood, but there are lots of times when I clearly I'm frustrated. So he pulled that off uh, in a way that I, I don't think I could have offered any guidance or coaching that would have improved that at all. Right. He had to, he had to decipher that. And I, I think to do that, he, he kind of channeled me as the author. And I was just really pleased, uh, with his professionalism. Yeah, it was very good. I, I, I enjoyed the book. I've listened to it three times already. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Can't help it. Oh, thank uh, you. But I, 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 like thought, it. I thought he did a wonderful job during narration. Uh, how long did it take from start to finish to create the book and then the audio book? So the, the, the book, because I was working full time, I, I had a terrific job, but I described it, it was like the job that ate my life. So, so I was just, working lots and, and trying to write during sort of my spare time or I would take a week off. Uh, it was a time when my wife had a, a, an overseas posting. Um, so that that kind of helped in that way. She right. was uh, vice president of a new airport being built in the Bahamas. So while we'd get together once a month, I'd get down there, she'd get home, we'd meet up somewhere else. I did have a lot of time I could be really selfish with. Sure. And I could take a, a weekend from a Friday night to, um, to a, a late Sunday night where I just was heads down and, and really, really working on the writing. But it was a couple of years of that 
in part because I wanted to research so much. I wanted to come up with new research. I wanted to phone and, and uh, talk to people to try and find new angles on old stories. So it, it took a long time. So the book actually came out four years after our trip. Okay. And then the audio book was, um, was not quite coincident with that. It lagged a little bit. Um, and I'm, I'm going to say that was a, a couple of a month, a couple of two months project. And again, I try to imagine the reading, the figuring out the voice, and then just reading 10 hours worth of storytelling. You can't sit down and do that. So right. that has to go over a spell of, of time. And, you know, when you're having a professional like the narrator of this, um, they've got other obligations. And, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Got to kind of fit it in. <laughs> but I, I, I did I did find myself wondering, so, you know, you're narrating a book by Rick Atkinson one day and a book by somebody else the next day and then a book maybe on a totally different topic the next day. And then you get back to Rick's book and you've got to remember how you were. You've yeah. got to go back into that, find your zone. And I think that's a level of professionalism I, I, I just certainly couldn't have brought. Wow. That's amazing. Now, your book, as far as the audio book itself, is nine hours and 33 minutes long. Yeah. Uh, the written book, how many words is that? Uh, I'm going to say 75,000 words. Okay. Oh, great. Yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, before we uh, get off onto the um, this uh, chapter that we're about to preview, why don't you tell us about some of the other books you currently have in, in, uh, that, in publication? Well, thank you for for that. That's um, it's, it's nice, as I mentioned earlier. Writers need uh, need readers, and so I, I I I respect your asking. Well, as I mentioned, my first book was to Timbuktu for a haircut. That's in in um, West Africa, and it was a fascinating journey to what is probably you know, one of the the often thought of as the most remote place in the world. Yeah, because, you know, I, I remember growing up as a kid and people would say, oh, you do that, I'll kick you from here to Timbuktu or to Timbuktu and back. And and my dad actually did say when we'd say as kids, five-year-olds, we'd say, where are you going, daddy, when he was leaving the house? I'm going to Timbuktu to get a haircut. So that generated my motivation to go there. Right. But it's just rich with history because there was a time when Timbuktu was was the center of trade of gold from the south of, of Africa with salt from the, the north and they were they were worth the same pound for pound. But it was a major trading center as important to Africa as England or France, as London or Paris has ever been to, uh, to, to Europe. It was that prominent of a place. But it's very difficult to get to. The, um, then the, the Route 66 book and then my third one, I, I joined an expedition five of us and a, a guide to the summit of Mount Ararat in eastern Turkey. And that is in, in Hebrew texts or Christian texts, the, um, the, the you know, legendary site of the landing of Noah's Ark. Um, in in uh, Islam, it was another mountain, but a, a, a similar story. Right. So there's heaps of history around sure. that, lots of lore and, and fabricated stories and stuff. Um, but the mountain is you know 17,000 feet, and it, it's a, a demanding climb. But when I was there serendipitously, I had a chance to get into uh, Iraq and then into Iran and then later back to Armenia. And there's just heaps of history there. And I filtered it all into the story. My most recent was um, in Papua New Guinea, uh, where during the Second World War, they had what General MacArthur said was the, the, the um, most 
horrible fighting conditions anywhere in World War II. And it was a protracted battle. And I did not know the name, the Kokoda Track, until I was set with an Aussie buddy to do it. But my wife was a general manager with the airport in Cairns in Australia, met some Aussies, and we went on this. So that book's called Walking with Ghosts in Papua New Guinea. And the subtitle sort of says it all. It says, um, uh, Crossing the Kokoda Trail in uh, the Last Wild Place on Earth. Oh, wow. Uh, and is that, I, th- I think, I thought you, I saw a couple other ones on your website. You can yes. refresh my memory. Yeah, right. So I've co-authored, um, a, a couple of others. One is called In Search of a Legend, Slumax Gold. And it's about a lost gold mine that has a, a curse on it. And the curse is that anyone who finds the mine will die because of that. It was a, a native man who put the curse on in um, in the late 1800s just before he was hung that's the legend but you know newspapers have recounted some 30 odd people who have died in this area but it's treacherous geography it's just really dangerous fog rolls in it's around a place called pit lake where the winds just whip up uh, and and so people have had drownings and that when they've been trying to canoe some people looking for the uh, the lost gold mine so i, I co-authored that it's a great, great legend. We still um, still go looking for it. Uh, I was up that way a couple of years ago. It's just, it's, it's, it's remarkable, beautiful. And, and then the other was on, on railway tales because I, I love trains. I've had the good fortune to ride on trains in 35 different countries. And, and, and so this is a, a collection of, uh, of, of tales about, about railways. Okay, great. When are we going to hear a, a redo of uh, Route 66? Well, boy, um, I'd, I'd be I'd be real tempted. I, I, I wonder when I want to do it in reverse. Start out at the pier in yeah. Los Angeles and yeah. head to uh, head to uh, Ogden and Clark in in, uh, in Chicago. I don't know. Um, I would love to get back on a, a three day patch. You know, maybe back to some of the, the New Mexico and some of the Arizona. Right. Just, yeah. It's just so, so it's it's heart heartwarming because you, you're in the the absolute um, mixture of America. Like like it it's it's uh, what we found because we talked a little bit of politics with people when we were there. Yeah. Is you just get a whole mix of the world and and they they kind of still like each other. They still have good conversations with each other, even though they've got differences. And I think that's because they're bound by something that is is more special than any individual. Right. And that's, you know, I mean, they think of the hardships of the people who traveled that road in the early days. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They think of, think of you know, you, 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 you couldn't travel very far in a car because the car wasn't built to go very far. They didn't have, originally they didn't have big gas tanks. They didn't have big trunks to carry things, right? right. And that's why they, they would have, in, in so many towns would have as the entrance, what they called the gasoline alley because people would have to, pull in and get get nuts tightened and tightened and they'd have to have you know more gas and they have to have you know grease they have to do all sorts of things and they go another couple hundred miles they had to do it again so yeah it's um of course the road the road also wasn't in the greatest of shape either (laughs) right so (laughs) is that true it wasn't shaped i mean this this is um this, this is part of the you know the 1926 story of when it finally became a road from you know Chicago to 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 LA, uh, it was a patchwork of roads that were for other purposes. 
and it took it took decades before it was all paved. Oh yeah. So now, while we tell our listeners now what they're about to hear in this chapter of Route sixty six still kicks. Well, it's it's one of my favorite chapters, and there are reasons for that. Um, part of it is I like the flow of the story, the the interplay of history and travel. It, it we wake up in Missouri. It, it has some real telling things during that part. Um, one of it is the, the how Route 66 got its name yeah. and why it wasn't Route 60 and, and how all of that came about and how the road got assembled. Uh, I was just saying it was a patchwork. It was in, you know one of the biggest lobbyist groups for getting this together were the bicycle clubs. Because they wanted better routes to be able to go on, because that was a mode of transportation. And there were other places where people wanted to have the road link up because, you know, there, there were there, you could go uh, within the same state and have five roads by the same name. It was very confusing. So it yeah. was a, at a time when the, the grid work of, of interstates was beginning to get contemplated. What's that going to look like? So this is called the National Old Trail because that was part of... Um, what people knew and it linked in in part to what is now route 66 but the other the other thing is that there, along this this part in this chapter um there were things like like we a place a fellow named gary owned and he he'd totally redone an old gas station and you know we get in we meet him the first thing he does is go to his his little refrigerator and bring us back a couple of root beers and and just talks about the the history of the place so there's lots right. of that there's some good meal scenes and uh and some just some good time on the road that if you were you if you're on a motorcycle or you're in a car with the top down or if you're with the family you would just love being alive and at that part of the journey excellent well this is rick antonson joining me here on the podcast in this episode of chapters and we're going to hear uh chapter four of his book still Route 66 still kicks. Rick, I want to thank you very much for joining me here on the podcast for this little episode. Well, it's so good to, uh, to be in touch with you again. And, and I thank you for you just now you've got me wanting to go back and read the book or listen to the audio. <laughs> thank you, sir. You take care now. Thank you so much. You too. Chapter four, the National Old Trails Road. My men folks have left me stuck in the mud all my life. Missouri Farm Wife, 1912. My Missouri morning broke happily. I was the driver that day. Up early, again skipping a shave, but having showered, I packed my gear in the trunk and took the driver's seat. It was drizzly and damp as I sat alone in the car, warming it up. I let the wipers clear the front window. For the first time, Peter showed up unshaven, though on track in once more being half an hour later than my hoped-for starting time. He slunk into the passenger's seat, where he thought I should be sitting. Missouri was one of the first states to pave the route, and it was just as quick to replace much of the route with Highway 44. You mean Highway 50? You're beautiful to be with, he said. Each new day is a fresh chance to try and get it right, I said. Peter picked the guidebooks up from where I'd left them on the car's floor, arranged them in order of size, then placed three of them in the glove compartment. As I drove, he chose one spread open on the floor map after another, folded them, and put two in the passenger door's side pouch. The rest went in the glove compartment. I thought he was sulking a bit because he wasn't driving. Then I realized there was genuine disappointment in his voice when he said Missouri had a lot of great driving, but 
few sixty-six dead ends. So I asked, what's your preoccupation with dead ends? Once they weren't dead ends. People designed them, built them, drove on them, had happy thoughts, probably believed they would go on forever. And? And? And we shouldn't ignore that every part of Route 66 was once part of someone's dream. Holding open the remaining map, he pointed out the zigzag pattern of Route 66's alternating between north of Highway 44, then south and back again, thankfully seldom merging with the interstate. You've got 300 miles of Route 66 to drive. Joplin for dinner? As the rain started to fall, we rededicated ourselves to seeking out parts of the road not easily traveled. First, Peter chuckled, remember these directions and we'll be fine. He read rapidly from the page in front of him, bettering the performance I'd given the day before. Take the outer road into Sullivan, past the city park, turn right on Elmont, then left at the outer road and continue through St. Cloud, Bourbon, Cuba, and Fanning to St. James. Turn right in St. James at the junction with Missouri 68, Jefferson, cross I-44, then turn west again on the outroad. After eight and a half miles... Makes sense to me, I said. Sure, he laughed. Clear as mud to you. I swung into traffic, cutting off a BMW that had showed up as if from nowhere. It honked, curved around us, and screamed down the road. Slow down, Peter advised. I sped up. Beginning in Rolla, and for the next 115 miles until Missouri's Springfield, Route 66 overlapped the path taken by Cherokee Indians in the winter of 1938-39 on their 1,000-mile forced migration from the state of Georgia to Indian Territory, now in the state of Oklahoma. Known as the Trail of Tears, it reshaped the United States. The Trail of Tears began on Cherokee ancient lands, located in northwestern Georgia and portions of neighboring Tennessee, North Carolina, and Alabama. The Cherokee were the last of five Indian nations in that vicinity to face expulsion from their traditional territories. The first to be relocated were the Choctaw in 1831, followed by the Seminole, 1832, the Creek, 1834, and the Chickasaw, 1837. The final indignity was the expulsion of the Cherokee in 1838. In all, more than 60,000 Americans, including a number of African-American slaves owned by the Cherokee, were involuntarily moved. Their trek took them through Tennessee, the western part of Kentucky, the southern tip of Illinois, and then Missouri, where it went straight across the state to present-day Springfield and headed southwest to Indian Territory, a vast allotment in which the five tribes were systematically relocated in separate jurisdictions. The Cherokee were placed in the north. Measures to move the Cherokee had first been contemplated when Georgia's immigrant population boomed in the early 1800s, putting pressure on the Indians to make room for the newcomers. Both willingly and unwillingly, they ceded parcels of their fertile land to the U.S. government, the Georgia state government, settlers, and businessmen, all anxious to acquire the eventual 25 million acres. Then, with word of a gold strike in the mountains of Georgia in the summer of 1829, the United States experienced its first gold rush. The push to get the Indians out of the way began in earnest. The U.S. government proceeded to steal land from the Cherokee through intimidation, manipulation, and the Indian Relocation Act of 1830. 
Andrew Jackson's presidency is characterized by his betrayal of the Indians' rights. He presented it otherwise. Warning them of cultural extinction and the continued erosion of their lands should they stay in the southeastern U.S., Jackson offered them an ample district west of the Mississippi and without the limits of any state or territory now formed. He assured them that, there they may be secured in the enjoyment of governments of their own choice, subject to no other control from the United States than such as may be necessary to preserve peace on the frontier and between the several tribes. A three-term congressman from Tennessee vigorously opposed the Indian Removal Act. Davy Crockett was 44 years old when he bitterly split with his fellow Democrat and fellow Tennessean, President Jackson, over what he called a wicked, unjust measure. The belligerent Jackson, whom the Cherokee called Sharp Knife for his tactics, told them the relocation would serve as a reminder of the humanity and justice of this government. The bill brought national controversy, passing Congress in a 102 to 97 vote in which the contrarian Crockett's nay reverberated widely. Let the cost of myself be what it might, he said. He was confident that it was the moral and right decision. I would sooner be honestly and politically damned than hypocritically immortalized. His actions cost him the 1832 election. Defeated, Davy Crockett left Tennessee to start a new, albeit brief, life in Texas. The Indian Removal Act was quickly signed into law by President Jackson, and in 1831 the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear the Indians' legal case to keep their land, ruling that the Cherokee were not a sovereign nation, and, by implication, neither were the other independent nation groups, not the Choctaw, the Seminole, the Creek, nor the Chickasaw the U.S. government immediately began displacing the natives from their lands and moving them west to then-undesirable land. However, in 1832, the Cherokee successfully established autonomous nation status in a separate Supreme Court case, delaying Jackson's plans and launching a treaty ratification process that was deeply flawed. The native leaders who signed the contentious Treaty of New Echota were eventually assassinated by their own people for doing so. The Cherokee Nation's four-month walk to their new home began in the autumn of 1838. They were force-marched west by the U.S. Army, accompanied by covered supply wagons. The movement of 15,000 healthy Native Americans continued as the pleasant fall weather turned to rain, then sleet, then snow, then ice. Throughout the harsh winter of 1839, their 1,000 exodus became rife with disease, malnutrition, and hypothermia. At one point, the natives were given blankets previously used in a hospital smallpox ward, another reason for them to be shunned by white people en route. 4,000 Cherokee perished before reaching Indian territory. Winners write history, we are told. So it was that for decades, school books and popular histories frequently called U.S. cavalry wins, victories, and referred to the occasions when the Indians prevailed as massacres. It is not at all a subtle point. Similarly, for over a century, Andrew Jackson's exchange of land was portrayed as a benevolent act by a caring government. There was precious little explanation of the Cherokees' ancestral farms being won by settlers engaging in whites-only land lotteries. Less was told of the plunder and the scorched earth approach to clearing away any visible reminders of the exiled Indian nations. 
The Trail of Tears forged a path, one-tenth of which was eventually covered by Route 66, the highway that almost always went where others had gone before. Salagi, the Cherokee language, refers to this migrant route as Nana Dal Suni, the trail where they cried. Oklahoma gained statehood in 1907, but not before the descendants of the resettled nations tried to protect their continually shrinking land base by petitioning for the Indian Territory to become a separate state of the Union. The petition was rejected by Congress. If the native peoples had been successful, Route 66 in the next state ahead on our drive would now pass through the state of Sequoia. Through the whipping windshield wipers, we saw the first of many barn sides covered with faded advertisements. In the 1930s, entrepreneurs had paid farmers to let them paint promotional billboards barn-wide and rafter-high. Eventually, they were replaced by special-purpose advertising billboards. Despite President Lyndon Johnson's 1965 Highway Beautification Act, which was aimed in part at eradicating the billboards, still they crop up. Here, they alert travelers to the Missouri's Merrimack Caves, a holdover from the glory days of family vacations, and they remain popular. They used to tag bumpers with paper ads while the car owners were in the caves, I said to Peter. So they claim to have invented bumper stickers. Do you want to go there? It failed the ten-second rule. Route 66 is an expression of America's romance with the personal vehicle. America's automobile ingenuity in the 1890s built on the success of Herr Benz in Germany in 1888 and that of Monsieur Peugeot in France in 1891, accomplishments that would soon be overshadowed by automobile giants such as Cadillac and Ford and by a pan-American road. By the turn of the century, 11,000 automobiles were on the road in the United States, and 75 companies manufactured them, among these the reliable Maytag, later of washing machine fame. Such was the popularity of cars that the American Automobile Association, AAA, was created in 1902 at the Chicago Automobile Show to bring a national presence to lobbying for road improvements and to encourage motor touring. The AAA's early mandate was to promote a transcontinental road. America's road system in the first two decades of the 20th century was a puzzle. Guess which road we're on? Many of its disconnected segments were short and for personal use only. These roads had begun as bicycle trails or farm-to-farm -farm buggy paths. Developed by private auto clubs, they were named on a whim, with no regard for where they might one day lead or with which other roads they might connect. Relatively new state roads, constructed to get goods to market, frequently intersected with these private roads and often led to the duplication of numeric designations and names. The resulting confusion, occurring during a time of rapid population growth and urban expansion, left manifest destiny without a reliable road map. Eventually, though, despite the mayhem, through state and state-to-state -state roads became the avenues of trade and travel, connecting the eastern United States with the West. Vying for transcontinental recognition, the proponents and users of each emerging route competed against the others for prominence and prosperity, lobbying for state and federal funds and improvement contracts, and courting the towns and cities that stood to benefit from their proposed course. The personal ownership of automobiles continued to increase, and automobile travel was becoming a feature of the American landscape. Trunks became a common feature on cars, and vehicles were given larger gas tanks. Long-distance car travel had arrived. 
an ocean-to-ocean -ocean highway association, as much an emotional pitch as a road-building endeavor, was formed in 1911. It was that era's defining vision, equivalent to President John F. Kennedy's later vision of landing a man on the moon. Forging this trail literally, politically, and physically were influential groups such as the Good Roads Organization, representing bicycle users, at this time numbering in the millions, the Women's National Trail Association, and the Old Trail Association. Mail carriers were strong advocates of a national road system. In 1912, a convention of community leaders and politicians had been held in Kansas City to choose the attendees' preferred route to California. The resulting National Old Trails Road, NOT, hinged to New York, was tagged the Broadway of America, though it really began in Washington, D.C. It would continue to St. Louis, then to Kansas City, Wichita, and Denver, where it would head south to Salt Lake City and continue to Santa Fe, essentially following the original 1825 Santa Fe Trail from St. Louis to Santa Fe, and then continue to Los Angeles. This decision made the termination of the ocean-to-ocean -ocean movement likely, as the proposed NOT would follow the convention's suggestion to parallel the Santa Fe Railway route from Albuquerque into Arizona and Flagstaff Kingman, and on to Barstow in California. With the National Highway Association being formed in 1912, the NOT gaining ground, and the Lincoln Highway on the verge of its formation in 1914, the ocean-to-ocean -ocean organization became redundant, and that association terminated its existence with its second annual meeting in April 1913. The highway that would become Route 66 also owed much to the dynamic Ozark Trail Network and its promotional association. The Ozark Trail Association was flexible enough to incorporate Missouri and Oklahoma, and eventually Texas and half of New Mexico, into an alternate route proposal between St. Louis and the West. Originating in the resort of Montenay, in the northwest corner of Arkansas, the Ozark Trail provided a loose connection of wagon roads and motor routes between St. Louis, Springfield, and Tulsa, and beyond. In 1915, the National Old Trails Route became the first road to rightly claim transcontinental status. The next year, President Woodrow Wilson signed the Federal Aid Road Act, allowing the nation to embark on schemes that by 1926 led to the creation of the national highway system. From all of these schemes, the national highway system's best-known artery, later tagged as the world's most famous highway, emerged from a patchwork of links, including portions of the Pontiac Trail between Chicago and St. Louis and parts of Boone's Lick Road to Kansas and the Ozark Trail from St. Louis to Tulsa, a ragtag group of routes, under the auspices of an expanded Ozark Trail, went from Oklahoma City into New Mexico on the Beale Wagon Road and on to Santa Fe, where it absorbed the National Old Trail and route to Los Angeles. By 1926, that collection of roads would be substantially defined on paper and ready for designation as Route 66. A dismal Missouri sky hung over the day. Peter pointed rather than spoke and guided us through the County J exit and south until his map work had us start west along County Z and on to a dead-end patch of 66. There's a place called Arlington announced Peter. No one goes there anymore, so I think we should. It was an easy drive along Old Two Lane and often within sight of the freeway. Eventually, though, it curved into the trees, became quiet, and led to the near ghost town of Arlington. Tom Snyder's Traveler's Guide calls this 
a real old road treat. Nevertheless, this worthy drive over the little piney river and into history is missed by nearly all Route 66 travelers. We shrugged off the eeriness of this isolated place, parked the Mustang, and walked the town's silent streets. Travel is sometimes an antidote to ignorance, and here the lesson was clear. What was isn't. What is won't be. We backtracked along the road we'd driven, learning along the way that this portion of historic Route 66 has confused researchers with a maze of alignments both south and north of the interstate. Your affection for dead ends is a little unsettling, I said to Peter, as he held up the map to show me that we had crossed over the freeway and placed ourselves on a short access road. Watch for John's modern cabins, he said. They were built when the route was new. On our right, overgrown by tall trees and hidden behind bushy shrubs, were John's collapsed wooden shelters, fronted by a lonely sign, presumably trying to say vacant. In my pre-trip mindset, I'd assumed we'd stay most nights in motor courts like this, refurbished, of course. Yet they were not easily found when our time came to bunk down each night. Again, we retraced Route 66 in order to go forward and drove through Hooker Cut, a stretch steeped in ghoulish traffic history from the 1930s. Many fatalities were attributed to its untamed curves, poor sight lines, rough surfacing, and narrow passage hewn through the ridge, all early dangers that were magnified by untrained drivers. The combination of those factors contributed to the section's reputation as Bloody 66. At a dip in the road, we swayed left and drove to a stretch where the original 66 struggled over an iron bridge built in 1923 at the Devil's Elbow, a name coined by loggers in their frustration with the Big Piney River Bend's log jams. We stopped and got out of the car for a walk. Orange and red leaves matted at our feet, held together by the glue of rain. I tried to kick some high to hear them rustle. They flew in clumps. The story of Route 66 has many beginnings and many advocates, but no story is more important than that of Cyrus Avery, an Oklahoman whose early endeavors need to be recounted while we're driving in Missouri. The route was blazed with false starts and political ambitions by dreamers and schemers and ne'er-do-wells. Avery was one of the dreamers. The passionate speechmaker was the New Road's first believer, an energetic builder, and its most enthusiastic ambassador. I challenge anyone to show a road of equal length that traverses more scenery, Avery proclaimed at rallies. His dark hair framed a slender, confident face. In public, he wore a round-collared shirt, modest tie, wool vest, and matching suit. Avery joined forces with the Ozark Trail Association when he attended the organization's founding conference in July 1913. His early reputation at such gatherings was as a renegade who spoke confidently, and eagerly forged common ground with allies. Avery's eye was always on improved roadways through his own state of Oklahoma, but he knew he had to begin by working with routes originating elsewhere. With a shared objective of better transportation corridors, these promoters cobbled together a scheme built on existing land routes, such as the Old Wire Road and the Albert Pike Trail. Avery believed that these fragments could be joined into a cross-country road. His vision was built on practical considerations. He advocated connectivity, continuity, and clarity in signage on what was going to be one of the greatest traffic lines in the United States.
Avery was involved in oil, real estate, and coal mining, all industries reliant on access roads. He called Tulsa home, and that fact drove his efforts to have the multi-state highway pass from Missouri through Tulsa, as well as Oklahoma City, the state capital. Meanwhile, competing interests in Washington, D.C., Kentucky, and other states fought to have the route bypass Oklahoma entirely, looping instead to the south, or north, via Kansas, Colorado, Utah, then Nevada, and on to California. Avery countered their plans by demonstrating that his national corridor meant both less snow and fewer miles through the desert. Appointed Tulsa County Commissioner, Avery drew attention to neighboring Missouri and its roads, superior to Oklahoma's both in extent and in quality. Wearing an additional hat as director of the Tulsa Automobile Club, he lured the 1914 Ozark Trail Convention to Tulsa. As host of the successful event, Avery's stature as a good roads advocate was enhanced, and he was given positions of influence among the nation's road-building decision-makers. Avery explained Oklahoma's challenge well. The fact that transcontinental railways have for the most part missed the state, because it was so long Indian territory, has also helped turn travel to other states. That situation needed to be rectified. A new highway route could not be solely based on where railways had run. At the 1916 meeting of the Ozark Trail Association in Oklahoma City, Avery proposed an extension to Amarillo, Texas, and then on to Santa Fe, New Mexico, where it would reconnect with the National Old Trails Road into California. That configuration proved a commendable detour from the all-N.O.T. route. It became an erstwhile competitor to the Lincoln Highway and presaged the diagonal highway that, in time, would outshine them both. By the early 1920s, Avery was at the forefront of the move to merge roads and tourism, in hopes of raising the revenues of one to help further the other. Of course, this also helped his own new business, the Old English Inn and Service Station, seven miles out of Tulsa, at the conveniently named Avery's Corner. In 1923, Avery, now Oklahoma's highway commissioner, made it his job to improve conditions on the state's muddy and poorly maintained roads. The following year was the beginning of a two-year quest for him and his associates to create the country's highways system, recommending to the federal government existing routes that should be designated national and therefore ought to receive federal funds for their upgrading. He termed it laying out, coordinating, and establishing a system of highways with markers and directional signs. This planning of arteries by Avery and a small group of advisors to the Federal Secretary of Agriculture was extremely controversial, nowhere more so than in Avery's efforts to ensure his home state's and hometown's inclusion on the list. The first agreement among the planners of this nationwide approach was in identifying a series of east-west highways to be intersected by a grid of north-south highways. Avery's pet project, eventually Route 66, remained an aberration. The route's diagonal slide across the nation made its consideration by Congress less likely than their approval of the more logical, horizontal, and vertical highways. Across the nation, there were still more than 250 uncoordinated and generally conflicting trail naming programs. Avery wanted to eliminate existing trail organization signs, those tied to private roads and automobile club designations. In their place, he lobbied for interstate signs to be adopted in order that the traveling public could get from one community to the other without getting lost. 
In an apparently simple solution, the committee members agreed to abandon names in favor of numbers. Major north-south arteries from the Canadian border to the Mexican border would end in the numbers 1 or 5, the sequence starting in the east. Complete east-west routes from the Atlantic to the Pacific would end in 0, starting with Highway 10 in the north and working south. It was thought that the public would understand that odd-numbered designations ran one way and even numbers the other. A motorist on a numbered road in the middle of nowhere would now actually have an inkling of where the road was heading. That's when Cirrus Avery embarked on gaining acceptance for his Chicago to L.A. route as Highway 60. The effort pitted him against Kentucky for that designation, as well as against those advocating for Highway 62. His eventual failure in this would lead to his greatest success. Peter and I dog-legged a bit around portions of Route 66. Following his favorite guidebook, we started down an uncertain road. He mentioned for me to pull over in the settlement of Bourbon when he saw the Circle Inn malt shop. Anyone for breakfast? He asked. Entering this tired cafe, which seemed to have existed since the dawn of pancakes, I realized this was the elsewhere that others wished they were able to visit, a place where they could disappear in a time warp. The waitress tipped coffee into our cups and placed a glass of milk beside the packages of sugar that were resting in a saucer. Peter asked her name. Sheila, she replied noncommittally. Sheila, how far is it to Cuba? We're headed there. Oh, I think it's twenty miles. Never been there myself. Never? Peter's face squinted in disbelief. It's only twenty miles. I'm not much for going west, she said, not at all defensively. Never had any reason to. I've been twenty miles east, though. Never? Peter seemed incredulous. She swung on him. Never had any reason to, she insisted, looking at him directly. A stout man on a stool behind me had apparently overheard our conversation. He jumped in to salvage the waitress's dignity. Take a woman like her, he paused, pointing to our waitress. Away from the root, the man suggested, and you take away the soul of Route 66. Where the hell did that come from, I thought. We were driving through Springfield, Missouri, which marks the beginning of one of the longest sections of the original Route 66 available to today's driver. Halltown to Paris Springs to Carthage to Joplin, all the way to Oklahoma City, resplendent with mothballed auto courts and shuttered service stations. We crossed a steeple bridge to catch a glimpse of history, the Springfield Courthouse, an elegant building, site of an often overlooked turning point in the history of modern travel, and we missed finding it. The steps of the courthouse witnessed the meeting of the three fatigued and frustrated men who named Route 66. On April 30, 1926, two Oklahomans clambered up those steps to meet with a Missourian and resolve a heated dispute about the number to be assigned to their hard-fought-for national road. The gregarious, high-collared, and sometimes high-handed Cyrus Avery had driven from his home in Tulsa with his abettor, the diligent John M. Page, Oklahoma's chief highway engineer. Missouri's highway commissioner, B. H. Peetmeyer, arrived separately, anticipating the contentious deliberation. Avery and Peetmeyer had fought for 60 to identify the entire road from Chicago to Los Angeles, wanting the zero status because it indicated a major route. Peetmeyer agreed with this, 
though his Missouri would not be dropped from alternative national routes as easily as Oklahoma would. Kentucky fought back, claiming prior use of 60 and invoking the rule that a West Coast terminus in Los Angeles needed a corresponding East Coast terminus. This resulted in Kentucky's proposed start of Highway 60 in Newport News, Virginia. The Kentuckians proposed Virginia, Kentucky, California and tossed Avery and Pete Meyer a bone, suggesting that the Oklahoma City to Chicago leg could become an offshoot tagged 60 North. Avery was insulted by the offer. Besides, Oklahoma had already presumptuously printed 60,000 brochures showing Highway 60 going through the state and had begun erecting Highway 60 road signs along its state road. This bickering drew wide attention, and Avery sensed that Congress might rule against not only his chosen route number, but his chosen route as well. When Avery, Page, and Pete Meyer huddled over the map table that afternoon, they knew they were not the victors in the battle for highway numbers. They disliked the patronizing proposal that Oklahoma City, Tulsa, Chicago become 60 North, appended onto a national corridor as an afterthought. They scanned U.S. maps showing all the other numbers bearing the approval of the federal authorities. They connived at how best to avoid the secondary trunk status being foisted on them. The National Grid's guidelines left them few choices. Page peered over the cartography while Avery and Pete Meyer talked of their dwindling options. They must move away from 60, but were too far north to use 70. And 64 was already assigned between Arkansas and New Mexico. Highway 62 promoters had cross-country ambitions for their road to become another strategic artery, bypassing Tulsa, though the number 62 was rumored as a default designation for the Avery-Pietmeyer proposal. Tapping the map, Page was the first to identify 66 as a possibility. Its alliteration, looping graphic, and synchronicity made it attractive. Pietmeyer, an earnest, methodical man, saw the logic. Avery sensed the inevitability. The two men sprang into action, rushing to send a telegram to federal decision-maker Chief Thomas H. McDonald, affirming, We prefer 66 to 62. That summer, the Public Roads Bureau Division of Design confirmed Avery's request. The route from Chicago to Los Angeles will be given number 66. Springfield had earned recognition as the birthplace of Route 66 when, on November 11, 1926, Congress approved the overall highway grid and numbering system, including Route 66. Let the map-making begin. With the acceptance of 66, the Oklahoman Avery and Missourian Pietmeyer kept their state from being marginalized by other highways. They did, however, suffer some embarrassment for their rash earlier decision. As for the U.S. 60 shields, we will have to junk them, Avery admitted. Avery secured 415 miles of the new route within Oklahoma, more miles than any other state. 405 of those miles still exist, for those willing to search for them. Route 66 would form 2,400 miles of what soon became an 80,000-mile network of federal highways. Having served as a midwife in the birth of Route 66, Avery turned to new activities, getting the entire roadway paved and promoting its use. He initiated the U.S. 66 Association to include all eight states, yet the organization never saw fit to elect him as president, though he came to be known as the father of Route 66. Avery worried about highways 30 and 40 as competition 
and embarked on aggressive promotional activities to establish Route 66 as the preferred road for travel and transport. He confidently christened it the Main Street of America, a slogan that is still in vogue. The progress of Route 66 was seldom smooth. The number one responsibility of the route's architects was to ensure that all its component roads were consistently passable. They were, after all, now part of a major thoroughfare. After its birth in 1926, the route had to wait 12 years before its entire length was either paved with asphalt, protected with boards, or covered in cement. Route 66 in eastern Missouri today delivers open stretches, little traffic, and a few surprises. As the road improved in the 1920s and 1930s, service stations sprung up to support the increased number of vehicles, all with small fuel tanks and needing frequent mechanical attention. Such locations came to be called gasoline alleys. One of the sweetest places on Route 66 is the Gay Parita Sinclair Station, owned by amateur historian and raconteur Gary Turner, who treats everyone as if they were his first guest. Part restoration and part replica, his gas station harks back to prosperous Route 66 days. It was established in 1930 and named for the then proprietor's wife. For today's traveler, it has been spruced up with white paint, red and green trimmings, and clean gravel. Peter and I were hopping out of the car when the side building's screen door opened. A man, more hefty than rotund, made his way with some effort down the rock path, where we looked at his creation. Glad you stopped, he said. Got things to show you. We've got the time, said Peter, shaking his hand. The man started walking over to the large garage, built of rocks, turning to look back at us twice to make sure we followed. I'm Gary, and I'm the owner. Would you look at this truck? Folks love to see it on the route. The doorway was truck-wide and truck-tall so that his vintage rig could back in. Peter asked him about Route 66. First, let me get you guys a root beer. With that, Gary went to a beige enameled fridge, opened its thick door, and held up three brown bottles. See the labels? The label showed Route 66 as the brand, bottled in Wilmington, Illinois. Gary twist-curled each bottle open and passed two over to us. I leaned against his truck while Peter pulled up a slat-backed chair. We relaxed in the garage, Gary propped on a carpenter's bench in front of a work table and rolling a cigarette. Peter prodded Gary again, sounding like a cub reporter. What do you think is the most important thing about Route 66? Gary lit his cigarette and glanced sideways to ensure he was out of sight of the house and thus spared his wife's reprimand. Exhaling, he became reflective. I've thought about this. Route 66 is a journey, I think. A journey through time and history. Peter put down his camera. Gary, puffing on his cigarette, continued. It crosses eight states, but we don't see state lines. We're all one family. A family of Route 66. Like America? I said. Not like America now, he replied. Used to be. Maybe. He was thoughtful, but not hesitant. People seem willing to take a democratic stand for this country. America's had a rough patch. Hell, we're not perfect. Besides, we've had a bad run of it. It'll be good again. Are you a Democrat or a Republican? Asked Peter. Gary leaned back on the table and let go a puff of cinder-colored smoke.
You probably know Will Rogers' line that I'm not a member of any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. Well, me too. Those folks aren't perfect. None are. But they're my type. They're this robes type. Of course, the Republicans did provide funding to let the heritage get preserved. Car tires crunched the gravel outside and in pulled a siren-red 1958 Chevrolet Impala, white canvas top-down. Shiny chrome emphasized the car's sleekness, and its oversized white walls had not a speck of dirt on them. The car had recently been polished and dusted. What didn't glisten wasn't worth looking at. As we approached, the driver and his passenger got out, all smiles, as though their car had finally found a gas station to match its own Route 66 DNA. Engine a 283? asked Gary, almost singing his presumption that this model had everything that was standard then. 348 turbo thrust, the driver replied, smiling proudly at the novelty. For a brief five minutes, America shone before us in a rearview mirror. America's safe harbor is the 1950s. Today, revisionist history portrays the decade as an extended period of national innocence, an era when everything seemed possible and nothing hampered the nation's well-being. Naive? Of course. Accurate? Of course not. But we left those facts alone. It was immensely satisfying to ignore the present and spend a few minutes immersed in contemplating a glowing past. Gary went into the station, turned on his radio, and soon the garage's speakers blared Impala driver Buddy Holly's 1958 hit, It's So Easy. The recreation of that decade's emotions disarms even cynical people. My station would have been here to service your car when it was new, Gary told the owner. The juxtaposition of this remodeled car and this revived vestige of Route 66 made the best of America momentarily believable. Swing your car around, Gary motioned to the two visitors, circling his left arm in the air and pointing to the bygone era's gas pumps with his right. Drive back under there, and I'll take your picture. He took the camera from the Chevrolet's passenger and primed the photograph by giving the men a flag to hold. They unfurled the banner between them, letting it catch the wind. It fluttered, revealing a Route 66 shield in the center, bordered with each of the eight transit states' smaller crests. The visitors' erect posture said more about America and Americans in their element than if they'd held the star-spangled banner itself. Then Gary sent us on our way, encouraging us to visit his daughter's restaurant several miles down Route 66 and with firm directions to a historical village. Neither suggestion fit in with our plans or interests, but Gary did set us straight on a curved road. I'll tell you what most people miss, he said, and you'll miss it too if you don't pay attention. We'd have overlooked the turnoff for an oft-ignored fragment of 66. A friend of mine is restoring the Phillips 66 station. These parts used to have lots of gas stations and car repair shops. Cars in the 1930s and 40s used to break down regularly. They weren't that 58 Chevy, let alone your Mustang. It doesn't need any attention. Gary's guidance got us onto a two-mile stretch of road that most guidebooks ignore. Halfway up the curve of the original route was a right-hand pullout, where Gary's friend's project stood proudly in the middle of nowhere, a renewed Phillips station. The service station no longer had any practical use. The metal roof showed signs of the building's long decline, but otherwise the stone structure was freshly scrubbed. 
It bore a recent coat of white paint on the doors and window covers, not to attract customers, but as an expression of the affection of its new proprietor. Phillips 66 stations were of a squat design, which made them not only unique, but also difficult to use for other purposes than pumping gas. When the design was first introduced, it conveyed expectations of pleasant surroundings and service at a time when most gas stations were eyesores and tended to regard customers suspiciously. Phillips went whole hog, hiring traveling registered nurses to check on their station's cleanliness and serve as travel information officers for drivers. Peter walked a circle around the service station, fussing with his camera, trying to capture the serenity and bleakness of the Phillips image with a black-and-white photograph. Perhaps he thought that would ease any confusion of this facility's orange sign with black lettering versus the later corporate logos red, white, and black. And here, nicely, the pumps were the traditional orange as well, which was the dominant color of the stations from the name's inception until 1959. Returning to our car, he asked, I wonder if Route 66 was named after the gas. Phillips 66 became fortuitously synonymous with Route 66, a co-branding illusion that resonates even today. The association was unintentional. Earlier in the 20th century, oil-rich Oklahoma was the center of oil refining and the headquarters for the many companies that were trying to market new petroleum products. In the fall of 1927, a Model T shot along Route 66 not far from Tulsa. Its tank held a new gasoline, as yet unnamed. At the wheel was Salty Sawtell of the Phillips Company. Beside him sat the clever John Kane, a manager at the company. This car goes like 60, said Kane, attributing it to the new gas. 60 nothing, said Sawtell, pointing to what the speedometer showed. We're doing 66. Within weeks, the gasoline's name was launched, and soon after the corporate logo was redesigned from a circle to a shield. The synergy of Phillips 66 with Route 66 became an optical, as well as thematic, match. The oil company's association with an emerging national symbol proved propitious. Peter continued to snap photographs randomly as we drove, whether or not they were needed. Now we were approaching a dilapidated trailer park shrouded behind trees. It was on a parallel frontage road, once itself a part of Route 66, now overgrown with weeds. We were unsure if local authorities had shunted the homes out of sight or if government inspectors wanted to ignore them. A frightful lack of attention had been paid to the site's attractiveness or suitability for building permits. This was obvious from the road at 30 miles an hour and confirmed by Peter's shout to, Slow down, back up, look at what we're missing! His eye for sad subjects was as unerring as it was unnerving. I reversed and parked on loose rock. Prickly weeds and brush clung to wooden posts that supported a drive-through, drive-under portico. The former service station's roof, now sagging, was pitched slightly on one side. Gutter moss crept over the shingles, thinning as it neared the peak of the roof. The structure was clearly losing its battle against gravity and climate. As we got out of the car, a man appeared in the doorway of a weather-beaten house 200 yards away. He stared at us with a caretaker's interest as I walked to the storefront. Peter aimed his camera at some orphaned signs. The front door's once stylish lettering announced, Cordille Wilson, Bookseller. I tried turning the doorknob. It was locked. I stood back. 
bullet holes decorated the door and shrapnel was embedded in the frame. I peered in the window. Shelves lined the walls and formed aisles throughout the store. Most of them held hardcover books. One shelf leaned against the counter where it had fallen, or had been pushed. Half its contents lay spilled on the floor, dust jackets curled, book spines cracked. Bits of insulation had fallen through the broken ceiling and formed a layer of chunky yellow snow over the books on the floor. A shelf full of paperbacks leaned against the back wall. Their multicolored spines had faded to beige and become wrinkled. Hardcover books protected with clear plastic wrappings glinted in the daylight. They were irresistible. I wanted to see the riches inside. Hoping that the door was stuck rather than locked, I put my shoulder to it. It was secured with a bolt that might stop a thief for seven seconds. Walking to the side of the building, I found a teetering fence whose slats had been kicked out in several sections. I entered between an erect fence post and two broken boards, then withdrew my foot from an unsteady board. It bared its nails at me as a guard dog would its teeth. I decided that if the front door was locked, the back one would be too. It was not open for my business. Peter had walked over to meet the caretaker in a display of innocence. The heavyset man carried a rifle, and his gait was awkward as he approached Peter, narrowing the gap between them and making for a better aim should he decide to use the gun. His T-shirt looked as if it had come from a tent and awning shop, and he looked terribly uncomfortable. Stopping by a fire in a pit, he signaled Peter to come closer. I left the bookstore to join them, in hopes that the man had a key and would be willing to let us in. This is Robert, Peter said when I approached, as though they were old chums. He lives here. He's fifty-seven. Once more, Peter had elicited telling details from a stranger within a minute of meeting him. He watches over the place. Half for years, said Robert. Got out of that war in Vietnam and got this bloat on my chest and a little pension, but not enough medical support. So this is where I live with my fourth wife who left me. But the kids come by when football's on TV and we visit before they go back to the city to have their dinner because I don't cook much because of this. He pointed to something that was trying to poke through his shirt, a cyst. He grinned at me. I saw you looking in the bookstore. It's closed. When will it open? I asked. The kid who owns it is the son of the man who used to own all these acres and died and gave it to him, and the guy wanted to make the gas station from 1940 into a bookstore years ago and brought all the stuff in and set the shelving up and bought a truckload of books from a vendor, but never showed here enough to keep it open, so no patrons, no regulars, and things fell apart with the rest of the man's land that nobody cares about, and that's why it's run down. Okay. I breathed for him and for myself. I risked another short question, knowing it might bring a further barrage that might burst his heart. Got a key? Only one with a key is the kid, and he's never here except once in a while when he needs money and comes by to take a book out and sell it to a collector. So they must be volumes worth something, because he does that and seems to get cash and then goes about whatever he goes about in town miles from here and doesn't show up again because he's not his father. You enjoy being the caretaker? Peter asked. No. Job fell to me. I'm the longest one of us to live around here. He waved at the trees, the expanse of ill-kept land and shoddy buildings. 
Because the back places have move-ins and move-outs all the time and need fixing up. But I'm not doing that because I don't get paid to do that, and they leave when it gets messy, and the new runners take over and shift the last tenant's garbage to a pile outside in the yard and let the places almost fall down in their filth. He shook our hands as we left. If I did have a key, I'd let you in. It was supposed to be the best bookstore on Route 66. Once. We neared Joplin, Missouri our morning's stated destination for dinner. But we pushed on. It was getting dark and Peter was antsy. Let's stay in Kansas tonight. We should sleep at least one night in every state, especially Kansas. Home on the range is the state's official song, he said. Keep going. Kansas was the first state to have its portion of Route 66 completely shunned by the interstate. But Route 66's original course touched on Kansas, and that was the route we wanted. The state had fed Route 66 with its own immigrants and its own travelers, despite being the shortest link among the Route 66 states. Peter guided me off Joplin's Range Line Road and westward, seemingly away from civilization. The buildings, the towns, even the jilted history nearly all petered out as Route 66 headed toward Kansas. A hundred yards before entering the new state, we found Paddock Liquors, housed in a building where once a filling station thrived as part of the state-line clubs and services for prohibition-wrought residents of Kansas in the 1920s and 1930s. Those days, and nights, we thought, were over. We walked past the dormant gravity pumps and poked around. Paddock was sheathed in defensive grills and metal girding to protect the salesperson, fridges full of beer, and shelves of whiskey. Don't be thinking I'll buy anything here, said Peter. Feels like a bootlegger's nest. Leaving Missouri was less of a ritual than we'd anticipated. A pavement bump, a concrete hump intended to separate one state's claim from another's, was charming, in a way. The road narrowed to become a mere driveway, the brush beside the road closed in with the evening's darkness, and then a sign confirmed the presence of the state line. It was over. We were in Kansas, on a bit of land that, for a dozen miles, brags of being Route 66. The stretch of road where we now traveled, unencumbered and unthreatened, was once closed by a Union strike that blocked travelers and goods. The year was 1935. The town of Galena, Kansas, named for the lead ore that sometimes holds silver and is itself of great commercial use, has declined since its days of grandeur, when prospects for growth seemed limitless. At the close of the 1920s, the community thought it had it all. Now, as then, the mine's tailings, piles of slag known as chat, pepper the landscape. The area has earned the nickname Hell's Half Acre, and that sounds like a remarkably small patch of ground compared with the miles of post-mining hazards that the designation represents. Here, miners pitched their efforts against Eagle Pitcher Mining and Smelting Company management, as the boom years of the 1920s ended. The layoffs began, a strike ensued, and, given the dearth of jobs, it was not surprising that many union members wanted to return to work. A blue-card union emerged, formed by workers who were trying to break the strike. Bloody battles were fought between the rival unions. Scab workers came into the mix, and the violence heightened. Eventually, the blue-card union was proven to be company-directed and disbanded but not before further incidents of violence. In 1935, 
Route 66 was blocked for three days by angry Rebs led by the powerful John L. Lewis, head of the United Mine Workers. Eventually, Route 66 was reopened, but it took many years for the tension to dissipate. On April 11, 1937, nine men were shot and one was killed while protesting the efforts of Union organizers, their assailants lost in the crowd. The spray of bullets brought them down in front of the offices of the International Union of Mine, Mill, and Smelter Workers in Galena. Using the car's interior light, Peter found the desired page in the guidebook. Little Brick Inn at Baxter Springs sounds quaint. I'll bet there's a restaurant with home cooking. We're in for great wine, an amazing dinner, and good conversation. We've talked all day, I said. What's left that you want to say? Relax. This'll be a night to remember. We're in Kansas now, Wizard of Oz country. I've never been in Kansas. This meant he'd never been to Baxter Springs. If he had, we might not have missed the signs. We cruised into the unsuspecting town, passing deserted sidewalks, empty storefronts, and closed shops. There's the hotel. I said this with a tone of assurance because we had driven nearly through the entire town. There's only one hotel in town. Must be it. Peter agreed. We pulled in. At the counter, I stood by as Peter negotiated our room rates down from $52 to $49 a night. I heard the exchange, I'm the manager and that's our policy. Then Peter said, Okay, I respect that. I'm the consumer and here's my policy. The manager caved. Brilliant, I said. You've saved us a lot of money. We are now ahead in the game by the equivalent of a cup of coffee. Each, he countered. Think of it, he said, and I sensed a lesson coming my way. The first night in Chicago, we stayed in a classy hotel. But your son got us a deal through his friend for rooms at $150. The next night, I got the price to $65, even though the night manager didn't want to go that low. Last night, in Missouri we knocked the price down to $62 a room. Tonight, I got it to $49. Do you see a trend? I can't wait till tomorrow, I said. I'll bring my sleeping bag. It's not the money, Peter said. It's the sport. We got the keys to our rooms, and the night clerk walked with us to make sure the rooms were suitable. Mine was a freezer. Shivering, even with my jacket on, I dropped my bags and left right away. I wondered if the room temperature was a tactic to combat an offensive odor, perhaps coming from a dead animal. The clerk promised to fix it, the temperature, and assured me that the room would be warm by the time we returned from dinner. Outside, we got into the Mustang and backed up. Nice to have the rooms. If we didn't stay here, we'd miss a night in Kansas and be across the Oklahoma state line for accommodation. Yep, said Peter. Let's have dinner, then come back to the Baxter Inn. Baxter Inn? Yes. Read the sign. I stared at the sign. Four less Baxter Inn. We looked at one another. It's not the Little Brick Inn, he said. We booked into the wrong place. Rather fast, we drove down Baxter Springs Main Street, Route 66, looking for the Little Brick Inn. Surely, with a name like that, it would have Kansas enchantment. 
We felt that was where we would find our real rooms and then weasel out of our Baxter Inn obligations. I'll even let them keep the money we paid, said Peter. Back among the darkened stores and shuttered shops, we found the intersection where the guidebook promised the little brick inn. And we found the inn. The cafe below the inn was closed. Its promise of nut-crusted catfish for dinner was not to be realized. A typed sign taped to the door indicated the three-story building no longer provided accommodation. We stepped back from this restored brick bank building, the site of an 1876 visit by Jesse James and his gang's prompt withdrawal of $2,900 in cash. We drove on a ways and stopped beside a restaurant that had a dozen cars parked nearby. Peter checked it out. Not tonight. Looks to me like it's part of a restaurant chain. No novelty in that. And they told me it's Sunday. They aren't allowed to sell liquor. Okay, let's go to the gas station store and get a six-pack of beer. Peter hustled out at the convenience store, returning to the car with news. The beer's locked up behind a wire cage. Want to drive back to Missouri? It began to dawn on me why Kansas might be the only state not mentioned in Bobby Troop's song. Only a brightly lit drive-in restaurant, a buzzing pizza place, and the predictable Kentucky Fried Chicken were open. We opted for car hop service. At Sonic Burgers, the chicken burger and ranch fries made for the best dinner in town, which is not to overpraise it. There was limited competition. A chocolate milkshake, eaten with a spoon, accounted for half the price and three-quarters of the enjoyment. We sat in the car at the drive-in with nothing to do and four hours to do it before bedtime. Want to go to church? I asked. Church? It might be the only thing open. My culture is Christian, but I don't practice. I read somewhere that this part of Route 66 is the knuckle of the Bible belt, Peter said. I think that's buckle. We circled town a few times to see if a church was open. Perhaps we could join a hymn sing. Not finding that diversion, we tried to find any entertainment. But we were too late for any action. We returned the Mustang to the motel. As we walked across an empty Route 66 to stretch our legs, we found a cavernous parking lot. In its corner was a Walmart, among the vanguard of outlets often seen as belittling Main Street character where it appears, and a cathedral of consumerism. An employee was locking the front door. There went the last option for a Sunday night time killer. The parking lot was empty. This being a trusting town, Walmart had left its garden furniture display intact and unlocked. We walked through it, stepping over wooden skids of fertilizer and around plastic shrub pots. We took two wooden lawn chairs, set them side by side, and sat down as the store's lights dimmed. It was time for a cigarette or a pipe, but I'd given up my pipe. I missed it terribly. Though Peter and I earlier seemed all talked out for the day, we now talked more, sitting in the Walmart parking lot with grazing land behind us, the animals snuggled in for the night, and the Baxter Inn's lights fading in the distance across Route 66. All I'd ever heard of Baxter Springs before this trip was that Mickey Mantle had played notch-above-sandlot baseball here on the Whiz Kids of Baxter Springs for three years as part of the Ban Johnson Amateur Baseball League. He called such places fly-spec towns. While preparing for Route 66, I had reread part of Mantle's autobiography, 
the Mick, realizing that it was in this town where a baseball scout from New York first asked him, how would you like to play for the Yankees? In 1951, Mantle's first season with the Yankees, the 19-year-old slumped. The pressure to perform and his lack of maturity affected his hitting and fielding, and he was returned to the minor leagues. Suffering from frayed nerves, he phoned his father one night after a poor game to say his baseball days were over. I'm not hitting, Dad. I just can't play anymore. I can't. Mutt Mantle jumped in the family car in Commerce, Oklahoma, headed on to Route 66, and made the five-hour drive to where Mickey was staying. The elder Mantle arrived at a lonely hotel room and heard his teenage son's anguish. I'm telling you, it's no use, and that's all there is to it. The Oklahoma father started to throw Mickey's socks and shirts into a bag. You're a quitter. I'm taking you home. You can go to work in the mines. Mickey Mantle suddenly saw himself as the young boy full of promise on a baseball field in Baxter Springs, on that summer day when his father had rushed through a throng of fans to congratulate his son on a game-winning swing. The memory of that scene jolted Mantle out of self-pity. Dad, give me another chance, he said. I'll try. Honest, I will. The next season, Mickey Mantle replaced Joe DiMaggio at center field for the Yankees, the team for which he would eventually hit 536 home runs and play in 20 All-Star games. God bless Baxter Springs. I'm sure there's value in being here, Peter said, shifting his lawn chair, scraping it on the ground of Walmart's deserted parking lot. I'm just not sure what it is. Perspective? I slowly emerged from my Mickey Mantle musings, knowing they would return in the morning when we drove through his hometown over the state line in Oklahoma. We've no responsibilities here, and we've no set time to show up anywhere. No one we know even has a clue where we are right now. Or would believe it, Peter said, pointing to a metal swing set, a plastic picnic table, and an empty concrete water fountain displaying a fake deer. Peter seemed happy to be on this trip, away from his sure-footed approach in business, and now daily looking forward to the unexpected. Two weeks is a lot of time to share with mostly one other person, and his doubts about being with me never seemed far from the surface. That day we'd tramped around the grounds of a hollowed-out motor court that once radiated pride of place for its owners and was a refuge for travelers. Today, disinherited. Peter had walked down the crumbling sidewalk to the last unit, and when he was returning, I'd spooked him as I came out of a unit's doorway. Why would you go in there? he asked. Why would you not? I replied. He ended up poking around the empty lodgings, creating his own interpretations of the peeling wallpaper. Must have made a family smile when they first put it up. And slumping roof beams. Place hasn't been used in decades. Saying that he felt as though he were on a walk of memories, and that some of the people who'd stayed there never really left. I mentioned this recollection to him as we sat on our uncomfortable chairs in Walmart's low-lit shadow. He shrugged it off as having been a moody moment. So I said, we've got pretty much everything one could hope for, right here. It's perfect. A car farted in the distance. Perfect, Peter echoed. They're rich people. They have land, a legendary highway, fast food restaurants, and a quaint but closed bed and breakfast. And a quaint but closed non-alcohol serving restaurant, he said. 
Oh, come on. Don't be maudlin. What more would you want? Let me count my wants, he said. Seriously, I said. I'll bet folks live here because they're happy here. I've read that the richest man is the one who needs the least. That'd make him rich here. It was Peter's turn to look around at the setting. He lifted and turned his chair while sitting in it to get a better look at how far the emptiness stretched. A front chair leg bent under Peter's weight as he landed, and it made him lean forward. I think I can see Oklahoma over there. That's tomorrow's drive, I said, and it's your turn behind the wheel. He viewed the prospect with mixed feelings, I thought. If he was driving, it meant that I was navigating, and no good would come of that. The Motorcycle Men podcast is supporting David's Dream and Believe Cancer Foundation. So go over to davidsdreamandbelieve.org to donate and watch that money go to something that actually makes a difference. And the Gold Star Ride Foundation is out there helping families of fallen soldiers. If you would like to be a part of a great cause and get some heartfelt miles in, go to goldstarride.org and learn how you can participate in the next Gold Star Ride. Thank you for joining me and Rick here on the Motorcycle Men Podcast. This has been Chapters with Rick Antonson and Chapter 4 of Route 66 Still Kicks. Links to Rick's books will be in the show notes and, of course, on the Motorcycle Men website. Hey, don't forget to go over to the Motorcycle Men YouTube channel and watch some of the many videos we have there, including the Ted Shed and Ride with Ted videos. Please note that the channel is changing its name is now will be called ride with ted there will also be a ride with ted instagram page and email address so keep an eye out for that so for the rest of the motorcycle men team thanks for listening remember we say stupid crap so you don't have to ride safely kids <laughs>